you would, take your Bibles, turn to Jonah chapter number 1 this morning. Jonah chapter number 1. We'll pick up our reading in verse number 17 into chapter number 2, verse 10. Read the whole of the chapter. For whatever reason, and I don't know why, but when the chapter divisions were made from an English perspective, um, they separated verse 17 in chapter 1 from 2. But there was a time in Hebrew literature when chapter 2 was a whole and it included verse 17, and chapter 1 ended in verse 16. And so we're going to take it um, as that whole, 17 through the end of chapter number 2. If you're willing and able, we'll stand out of reverence for the reading of God's Word, and then we'll go to the Lord in, in prayer. Jonah chapter 1, verse number 17, we read these words. Now the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the fish's belly, and he said, I cried out to the Lord because of my affliction, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded me. All your billows and your waves passed over me. When I said I have been cast out of your sight, yet I will look again, Toward your holy temple. The waters surrounded me, even to my soul. The deep closed around me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. I went down to the moorings of the mountains. The earth with its bars closed be behind me forever. Yet you have brought me up, my life from the pit. You have brought, yet you have brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my soul fainted within me, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer went up to you, into your holy temple. Those who regard worthless idols forsake their own mercy, but I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. I will pay what I have vowed. Salvation is of the Lord. So the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. Let us pray. Uh, Father, we come to you again as a people in desperate need of you. Father, first and foremost, we praise you. And we praise you because you are not altogether like us. We praise you, Father, for that character and that nature that exceeds all of creation. Father, that which is distinctly yours and yours alone. Father, while we recognize that you communicate some of that to us, we recognize that it's because you are altogether different. And we will never be you. We praise you, Father, that we are made like you. We thank you, Father, for your holiness. That separateness, that otherness, Father, than us. And the reality that you would bring us to that. Father, we thank you for your righteousness when we are not righteous. Father, we thank you for your love and your grace, compassion and mercy when we are not. Father, it is because of who you are and what you've accomplished that we can glory in any of those things. And Father, that we could brag that we are holy today, that we are loving, that we are righteous if we have any of that, Father, in us. Um, it is not because of us. Father, it is because of you. 
and therefore you are worthy to be praised. And Father, the great means by which to accomplish that was your Son. And we bow before him now, Father, and praise him for the work that he's accomplished on our behalf. Father, now that we, so, so that now we can enter boldly into the throne room of grace and ask in our time of need, Father, and it is a time of need. We need you, Father, people who are not your people, who now are. You have given a hunger and a thirst for righteousness. And we recognize, Father, with hungry hearts this morning, thirsty souls, that if you do not feed us, we will not be fed. So, Lord, we pray that you would prepare our hearts for the word of God. Father, that you would feed us with manna from heaven and that you would quench our thirst this morning with eternal things. Father, and that as a result of our gathering, we would be more like your son. So, Father, go with us now to the text. Go with my own heart as I proclaim the text. Help me, Father, to be faithful, not only in giving but receiving. Father, even in the, in the activity I'm a preaching, and you use it in my own soul, Father, to convict my heart of my sin and to bring me to Christ. Show me him, Lord, and, um, and for that we will praise you. I pray for all those that are hearing that you would do the same. They would receive the word with joy and gladness in whatever capacity, Father, they find themselves this morning, and that you would speak to their souls. Father, they would hear a word from heaven, that it would go forth powerfully, like a double, like sharper than any double-edged sword, um, discerning even the very intents and thoughts of our hearts, Father, dividing us under, uh, making us, pushing us, Father, to your Son. And no doubt there's someone here this morning, Father, um, possibly, if, if no one else, Father, among our children. But no doubt there may be someone here, Father, that doesn't know Christ. May today be the day of their salvation. Father, may it be the day when the word goes forth with power, shows them the, their sin, brings them to the end of themselves, Father, and you draw them um, into life in Christ. We beg and plead for you to accomplish that this morning, Father, um, because we know that only you can. You save, so save this morning, Father. And uh, for the rest of us, continue to mold us into that image. So go with us now, Father, in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you, Thank you for standing. I would like to provoke your thinking this morning prior to getting into the text with a question. And if it seems somewhat elementary, and that's because it is. If I was to take a poll, no need to shout it out. If I was to take a legitimate poll this morning and just ask a simple question. What is the purpose of the cross? I'm just meditating on it for a second. What would your answer be? What is the purpose of the cross? And I imagine if I were to hand out sheets of paper, if I were to ask you to legitimately answer that from an open-ended perspective, no multiple choice, uh, most, if not all of us, would say something to the tune of to save sinners. And if you were to write that down, you would be right. That is true. But I would go a step further this morning and ask you to think a little bit deeper about that question. 
Maybe take it a little bit further. Go beyond for a bit more. Maybe it would help if I ask you a question to kind of clarify where I'm going. Um, with a simple illustration, if I were to ask some of the men here today, you know, or I, as my children often have asked me in the past, Daddy, why do you go to work? Um, and being asked that sometimes just with a quick answer, I will say something like, to make money, honey. <laughs> um, it's, and that's true. But is it really the ultimate reason why I go to work? Not ultimately. Hopefully I go because I understand something about God, about myself, about the world, and that God calls me to that, but also that, it, that, that the money that I receive is a means to an end. To build and cultivate a life here that honors God and contributes to His kingdom. So in some sense, yes, making money is the immediate cause. That's... It, but ultimately, it facilitates a life here required and desired of me and you by God Himself. In a similar way, the cross does save men, but it is to a means to an end. God the Father sends God the Son into the world, empowered by God the Spirit, humbling Himself by laying aside His rights and His privileges, becoming like us in all points, true humanity, um, the purest of all the ages, would eventually hang there upon that tree, endure all that Rome and Israel could give, but more than that, He would take upon Himself the guilt of all mankind and endure the wrath of God, nailing our sin to that tree. So that all would come to him by faith would receive the forgiveness of sins. Not only that, a sinless life would be transferred to our account so that not only would our debt be canceled, but that we might stand before God robed in that righteousness that we just sang about, a totally undeserved, unearned favor. We call that grace. Grace alone. In Christ alone. Why? So that we could simply live forever? No. But that we might know Him. So that we might fellowship with Him. God's purpose in the work of His Son is, yes, to save you from hell and from your sin, but it is also to save you to something. In other words, that He might reconcile man to Himself. That we might have a lively union and a communion with the God of heaven and earth through and in Christ Jesus. This is why Christ died. So that you now could enter in, not in, in the future um, uh, utopia, but that now those realities are given and extended to you in such a way that we now can go into the very presence of God. That we can fellowship with our Lord. That so, so, so what is the purpose of the cross? In some sense, yes, it is to save men. But it is more than that to reconcile man to God such that we can fellowship and to commune with one another. And really that is the secret to the Christian life. One of the great secrets to the Christian life, or I may actually argue the key to the Christian life, is in communion with God. It is in fellowship with Him. 
Jesus Himself illustrates that for us in John chapter number 15. You'll read there of His instruction to His disciples and His instruction to you today. And what He does is He gives us an illustration there of a vine and branches. And when those branches are engrafted into that vine, the life of the vine is infused to the branches and thereby fruit is produced. That it is through union, positionally placed in Christ, but it is also through communion. That, that in that union, it's more than just a dead branch hanging from a live vine. It's more than just, we hope today, to, to hang on there a little bit more. It is actually the engrafting into that vine and the union with that vine that now there is this, this opportunity for fellowship with the vine. Thus that the branches come alive. And thus joy is produced, arguably, in that passage. Um, Jesus says, "Allow if, if my words abide in you, let them abide in you, and you'll have joy forevermore. Um, that, that joy is produced through union and communion with Christ. That there is that fellowship. And by virtue of that fellowship, that's where the fruit of the Spirit abounds. <clears throat> so you can see the great offense. As Jesus Christ is presented to a lost and a dying world, um, the extent that He would go to in drawing men to Himself, we can look at that great and gracious gift and see why it is such a great offense to God for men, atheists, skeptics, and us before we were converted to say, I don't want anything to do with that. Um, yet at the same time, may I argue this morning, that it too is a great offense to that same God and for His children to live in such a manner to practically deny um, the reality and the purpose of the cross in our lives and as we turn away and refuse to fellowship with our Lord. Imagine for just a moment a father, a son, a father, a mother, and a son who raised a child for 18 years. I'm at a great cost as they're about to leave the home. They give them a present that cost them greatly and that present was designed to continue to cultivate and fellowship, uh, cultivate fellowship among them. And for them, after 18 years of total devotion, I'm to look at that, cast it to the side, Imagine the great offense to the mother and the father. And you really don't need to, to, tra to travel far. I mean, God gives us in Luke chapter 15 that very account. The account of the prodigal son who was raised in the home of what seems to be a loving father um, who, when it was his time to leave the home, in some sense says, Father, efficiently says, Father, I wish you were dead. Give me my estate and I will go. Breaking all fellowship with that father. You can imagine the offense that came to the Father. Um, so you can see from, and, and the prodigal son there is often a, a um, proclamation of a, an evangelistic type of sermon. And many men have been saved under it, but I would argue probably more than that, that this is, that this is a picture of God in relationship with His children. And that what we see in the prodigal son... We may very well see here in the life of Jonah. We see a man who is in covenant with God. 
gives every indication that he is a true prophet, a son of Amittai, a son of truth, um, brought up in the uh, reality of God's word under the law, extended amazing grace, a particular and unique man and prophet in the sense that he understands the mercy of God as he proclaims it to Israel prior to being called um, to Nineveh. That this man who understands and knows experientially as well as prophetically, the grace and the mercy of God was that unique and perfect candidate to take that word to a lost and a dying nation. And he says no. But the great offense comes. Not only in the external disobedience, but I think what you'll see this morning is the great crime um, of Jonah culminates in the reality and that he has run from the presence of the Lord and he has broken fellowship with the triune God and that communion which he's lost is the ultimate desire of his heart to restore I mean we see that evidenced here in this prayer in this prayer and that's what I want to highlight this morning particularly Jonah's prayer. But as we looked weeks ago at the process of restoring what we might refer to as someone who is broken fellowship with God, and you know, a term that's popular among many circles is a backslidden Christian, someone who has known the grace of God, yet they have turned away from the grace of God. And we looked at that somewhat of a roadmap or a process, not a five to seven step method to restore or to reconcile with God. But at the same time, these principles that overlap or, or logically proceed one from another um, show us the road of a of a man who has departed from God and who is in pursuit or is, is on this path back to God. Although he may not know it, God is working with him in chapter number one, sending him uh, pagan mariners and putting him upon a ship and sending him a storm and preparing for him a great fish. Why? All to restore that fellowship um, which he once had with God, that purchased privilege of God's people, Right? That purpose is that reason for which we were saved, to be reconciled to God, to fellowship and to commune with Him, to talk with Him freely, to, to, to live out the life that God has given Him. There on the boat at Joppa, it's more than just disobedience, it's Jonah casting aside all that the Father is and all that the Father's done through the Son. And casting it aside and saying, you know, it meant nothing. It says it's it's efficiently us today walking with Christ, receiving his grace, it being manifested in a manifold um, host of ways. And us one day picking up and saying, Father, I want nothing more to do with your son. His cross means nothing anymore. His blood, which, is, which, which paid for my sin debt so that I might know Him, and then I want nothing to do with it. And in some sense, when you think of it like that, you'll see the great sin of apostasy. Those who once tasted of the goodness of God, now casting it aside. And this is more than just someone thinking they were saved. I think we have every intent to believe here that Jonah was a true prophet, that he was a man of God, that he was a man in fellowship with God. 
I'm not talking here necessarily about apostates who went out from us because they were never of us. But we're talking about people here like you and me. Those who know the true grace of God. Who understand the cross. Who lived in fellowship. Who know of the warmth of His embrace and have heard the word. And it came forth like a powerful double-edged sword. And God has worked and continually worked in us. But we have so departed from that grace practically and and. and in a, in, a, in a functional manner. And we're walking in our own way. Whether it's by open, calculated, blatant disobedience. Or it's by just a whole multitude of sins here and there. That we've neglected to take care of with God. That now we've cultivated an apathy and an indifference. And it has been weeks, months, maybe years since we have heard from God. And He is like Jonah. You are like Jonah there upon the boat. And God is sending storm after storm after storm. And all we do is sleep. God's activity is all around us. And yet our eyes are not open to see. Our ears are too heavy to hear. And we are slumbering away. And in some sense we are functionally, practically. Offending God. um, As we... Lay aside the blood by which He purchased and bought us. And saying we're happy to live. And without that union. And that communion with God. This is the great sin of John. Um, That in that no, that no represented something. In their disobedience, it says something about our relationship with God. It says something to God. And it says something to the world. That our, our obedience is to grow out of this allegiance with God because of the gratitude of heart for what He has accomplished on our behalf. So when we look at men like Jonah, maybe this morning, when we look at our own hearts and we evaluate the no, I will not do that. And maybe we will read it a little bit different. Um, because in essence in that, we are like prodigal sons saying, Father... Thank you for everything, but I want no more. And more than that, we are saying to the Father of heaven and earth, the one who created you uh, for his own glory, bought you out of your prison of sin, purchased a people for himself. We're saying in that note, we're saying I want nothing more to do with you. I just want you to facilitate the journey. That's what Jonah has done. But at this point in the process, God has almost completed the purpose for which he sent it. And that purpose was the pursuit of Jonah to restore that fellowship with him. And I want to argue this morning, as we look at this prayer, that prayer is a fundamental, essential aspect of restoration. I'm not saying that you have to pray a prayer, not saying that you need to repeat a prayer after me, um, but saying that as air is to the lump, Um, so is prayer to the saint. Um, And it's not as if it's something that you conjure up and do. Just now, I did not breathe because I said, Damon, breathe. I need 12 a minute. If I don't get 12 a minute, the sermon's going to be really bad. Um, And I stop momentarily. No, it is in the activity of God. He has put it within my being to breathe on my own. And and prayer for the saint is as as common as breath for the human. 
And that prayer is almost that exhale. As we've taken in God. It is that response to to breathing that we exhale. This is Jonah in some sense exhaling this morning. Because of the activity of God around but ultimately in and through him. And this prayer is somewhat, it's, it's, it's phenomenal, but it's somewhat difficult um, to, to, to kind of outline or to um, logically proceed through. What Jonah, is not, what Jonah is doing this morning is Jonah is not eloquently writing a discourse in how to mimic my prayer. He's not necessarily saying, this is a teaching moment, guys. As we stand before the congregation with the pulpit, oftentimes it's that, you know. I'm uh, trying to model how to pray. pray. It's almost very difficult um, to even pray. To think that I could be alone with God and commune with Him in the fellowship of 130 people is a difficult task. Um, but here is Jonah, away from all the crowds... Israel is nowhere to be found. The pagan mariners are there upon the ship. He finds himself alone with God in the belly of the, in the belly of a great fish. He's stripped away of all things. And there he exhales. He prays. He seeks the Lord. And it's not eloquent. It's a plainness of speech from a humbled man. Who's at the end of his life in ropes. And he begins to see and desire that for which he was truly created. That is communion with God. Communion with God. So I want to give you three points this morning. Number one, the reason Jonah prayed. The reason Jonah prayed. And it's easy to look at the, at, at the circumstances and say, you know, if, if I were to ask you boys and girls, if I were to ask you men and women, why in the world does Jonah pray? I mean, it's easy to look at verse number 17 and say, man, he prayed because he was in the belly of a great fish. Right, verse number 17, now the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Jonah is on this great journey in disobedience with God, um, to the extent that God is going to go to seemingly extreme measures to bring him back to himself. Um, yet at the same time, it's, it's overwhelmingly clear that the text is not so much consumed um, with the reality of the fish as we are. You can go to commentators, you can go to Christians, you can go to sermons, and you can hear 30 to 60 minutes, if not a whole series, on what it must have been like for Jonah to be in the belly of that fish. Um, and we, we come to grips with that reality. I have no qualms this morning with verse number 17. There's a lot of theories that maybe we'll get into in the next week or two as to what happened to Jonah. Did he live or did he die? Did God miraculously um, resurrect him after death in three days in the, night, uh, in the belly of the fish? Or was he supernaturally sustained for three days and three nights in the belly of the fish? And what must it have been like there with the, that great fish and all of this and all of that and, and just the environment, uh, biologically, the scientific realities, the possibilities? All of those things. It's interesting that Jonah doesn't really get into all that. Because this is not a story about Jonah and a great fish. This is a story about Jonah, a disobedient prophet who would not obey God. And God bringing him back 
And thus we see more of, so, so what we see is not, not just those outer circumstances explained for us. But what we see more of is a, is a, a descriptive depiction of what Jonah is experiencing in his soul. He in the belly of that fish. So yes, so, so why does Jonah pray? What is the, the reason? Because Jonah was cast into the sea. And in that sea, as he begins to sink down into the depths of the darkness, the, the waters, uh, verse number 5, the waters surrounded me, even to my soul. The deep closed around me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. He felt his life slipping away at the point that he, that, 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 that he wants to... to, to he feels somewhat of a, another direction, no doubt, that swallowed by a great fish. The force of it brings him into the belly of the ocean, but also the belly of the fish. And he begins to turn his mind to God and to pray. Where? Out of, verse number 17 says, or from the fish's belly. So what was the reason for Jonah praying? Some would argue the sea, the fish. Um, but I want you to see more. And that's true. Again, let's go further and see more. What was the reason, verse number one? Then Jonah prayed to the Lord, from, uh, to, uh, Lord his God, from the fish's belly. And he said, I cried out to the Lord because of my affliction. I cried out to the Lord. Why? Because of my affliction. That's the true reason for Jonah's prayer. You can see the affliction grip. Not only the body of Jonah, but his soul. And to spend our time pondering the material aspects of Jonah's dissension into the heart of the sea, the belly of the fish, trying to reconcile the biological and scientific realities of the count, is to fail to see what is accomplished in the heart of Jonah, um, and, and it is to miss the entire heart of the passage. Um, verse number four. You begin to see the heart of Jonah. Then I said, I have been cast out of your sight. Here is a man who wrestled with God, not only on land, but in his heart. And he says something to, this, to the extent of, I realize now that I have been cast out of your presence. Your eyes are not upon me. That Jonah had read the pages of his life and interpreted the last few days and these particular events. He sees now as, in some sense, God is through with me. As the converted sailors cast him out of the boat and the sea is calmed, Jonah interprets it as God casting him out into the deep. Verse number 3, For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, he says. But more than being cast out of the boat, he interprets it as being cast out of his sight. Jonah reaches a state of utter despair. Verse number 7, When my soul fainted within me, I remembered the Lord. His soul, Jonah's inner man, everything that made him who he was. In this moment, he's like a man dying of heart or liver disease on his deathbed. He's been in denial for months, maybe weeks. And if it wasn't as bad as everyone says, he, he, he doesn't think it's as bad as everyone says. I mean, he thinks, I feel fine. Maybe they've got it wrong. But as time progresses, how rapidly it overtakes that man's body. And he lays there motionless in the moment, struggling even to breathe. Finally, strength is gone. His soul faints within him, wishing it all to be over. And he gives up internally before his body gives up externally. This is Jonah. 
No doubt Jonah's denying it for days. No doubt he's thinking and reinterpreting the storm. It's, it's not my fault, but God cast the lot in him and he's still not ready to give up. You know, the pagan mariners come to Jonah and they say, Jonah, you should get up and pray. He's not a praying man at that moment. You want to know one of the distinct characteristics of a man out of fellowship with God? It is the lack of prayer. He, does, he knows he can't go to the Lord. He knows that there's no running to him. He knows that he could repeat a prayer. He knows that he could look good in front of those pagan mariners and say the most eloquent that Israel has ever heard and the most eloquent that any pagan has ever laid upon their ears. But he knows out of fellowship with God, God will not hear him. Men, he won't hear me, he he could have said. I am out of the presence of the Lord. He explains that to them. He does not run to God in prayer. You know what his conclusion is? Cast me out of the boat. Throw me into the sea. He knows how far from God he is. He knows the distance. He knows when God closed his ear off from him. He knows that moment in which he he lacked fellowship with God. Jonah comes to the realization of that in the moment, in the belly of the fish. Um, As he's sinking down and the weeds wrap around his head and the billows roll over him, he comes to grips with the reality that his affliction is the result of him. Jonah comes to the realization that his present circumstances were his affliction. The word there means straits, it's distress, it's trouble. The word is translated at times in the scriptures as adversity. And one time, at least one time in the King James and New King James as adversary. Jonah's affliction was his enemy in the moment. And his enemy that day would become his best friend. That that Jonah was an enemy with God. In some sense, in a functional manner as he pursued his own sin and disobedience with God. Breaking fellowship with him and saying, I will go my own way regardless of what you say. God sends affliction and that affliction on the, for, on the, on, on the surface seems as if it is, is his enemy. And in some sense it is. Why? Because he is at enmity with God, um, practically speaking, as he disobeys and, 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 re, and, and rebels against our Lord. But it is in that enemy our Lord would come with that affliction and press Him such that He would praise God. And that that enemy would become His best friend. His enemy that day would be the means that God would use to evoke Him to prayer. And evoke Him, provoke Him to pursue God. Therefore, in verse number 2, And He said, I cried out to the Lord because... Of my affliction. That it is that affliction. The re- is the reason of his prayer. But it's more than just a, 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 a stomach closing in upon him. As he's consumed in the fish. What he realizes in the providence and the love of God for him. Is that this, this, this enemy. This adversary. This adversity that comes to me. Is, is that reason for which now I pray. Verse number four. It was God casting him out of his sight. God was removing him from his eyes. And that would be that which would provoke his next action. In verse 4 he says, Yet I will look again toward your holy temple. 
It was that darkness. It was that silence. It was that lack of fellowship. It was that moment in the darkness when he realized that he's all alone and that he truly has been cast from the presence of the Lord, that his soul would faint within him. He would somewhat give up as a man internally as well as externally, ready to receive the water in his lungs and give up the fight. And the text says that was what caused me to remember the Lord. And my prayer, verse 7, went up to you. That the reason for Jonah's prayer is, yes, again, a fish. Yes, it is a great storm. Yes, it is the billows washing over him. Yet at the same time, it is the Lord. It is the means and the instruments by which God uses that affliction that draws him to himself, shows him the nature of his sin and rebellion. And it is that which God uses to bring his wayward son back. In Jonah, we see the reality that God uses whatever means necessary to leave the 90 and 9 and go after the 1. And here in Jonah, in some sense, he does that very thing. We see the reality of Hebrews chapter number 12. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as sons. For what son is there from a father who he does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. Now, no chastening seems to be joyful for the present. Jonah would say, Amen. But painful, the author of Hebrews says. Nevertheless, afterwards, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. That what you see here in Jonah, And in the reality that is manifested here is the affliction comes as a father to a son. Not because he is judge and jury pouring out a sentence upon Jonah, but because he is a father leaving the 90, a shepherd leaving the 99 and going after the one. He is a father utilizing whatever means necessary and even painful for the moment. Why? That he may once again receive his son for which his son died. And we see this reality all throughout Scripture. We see it in the parable of the sower. That true, that affliction is that true gauge of sonship. That, that, that affliction, when it comes um, to those that are the fathers, God will use to show them the true state of their soul as it's laid bare. That as the seed goes forward in verse number 20, we see that there, is a, there are a people in which there are, the, the seed falls on stony places. And when they hear the word, they immediately receive it with joy. Yet there is no root in, him, in themselves. But they endure for a while. For when tribulation or persecution arises because of the word, they stumble. And they turn back. But not the sons of God, the, the scriptures argue. The pr- true prodigal son returns to the father. One commentator wonderfully says it like this. It is always interesting to mark the workings of a soul when struggling with the strong billows of affliction. Especially in the, if that affliction has come in the immediate train of backsliding and appears as the net in which God has caught a wanderer from the fold or the rod by which He would bring him back to obedience. He says the effect would be quite uniform. The means would always reach their intended aim if in the person so dealt with there were always the element of sincere piety. Patrick Fairbairn, an old Scottish pastor in the 19th century. 
And what he's arguing is, is that those that are children of God, sons of the Most High God, um, God pursues, and often he pursues in the rebellion with affliction, and the result is always the same, that God brings them back. Why? Because they receive the affliction as sons. It's amazing to me, the familial tie that is just innate within families. You know? And not only that, but within the church. But particularly within fathers and sons. That there are things that if you took a window into the soul of my home on some days. Uh, the things that I would say. You would think, man, that, that, that father is harsh. He needs to take it easy on those kids. Um, yet they don't think so. Right? They receive it. Why? Because not only do they receive the, 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 the chastisement of a father, the discipline, the correction, and the rebuke of, of an authority over them, they also recognize that this guy's more than just judge and jury. This guy gives his life day in and day out for me. They see the side of a love of a father. They come and, and they, when daddy gets home, they jump into my lap and there is this warm embrace and there are these different aspects of a father. But they know that, that, that in that moment, because of the love that the father has in these, this round, the love of their father too is in this. They may not immediately grasp it in the moment, but as time goes on, the goal would be for them to understand that the correction and discipline that goes forth from the father figure, from the mother figure, is because of love. You know? Yet in their maturity, oftentimes, like me, I did not understand. But when the Christian matures, when he begins to understand, when he grows, when she grows, um, she begins to realize, he begins to realize that in that love of the Father that he pours out in so many magnificent ways, one of the great loves that the Father has is in the chastising of those children. That that is like the double-edged sword, the compassion and grace that is extended to the children. On one side is loving and gracious and merciful and compassionate. It is a warm embrace. And yet on the other side, um, he pulls them back with the staff and he, and he holds them back with a rod. And as painful as it is for a moment, it produces in them a, 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 a lifetime and an eternity of righteousness. That God utilizes many means. That if you're going to restore fellowship with God, one of the things you must come to grips with um, is that reality. That the afflictions that surround me are not God hating me. It's not Him, an angry judge, pouring out condemnation. There is now, therefore, no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. That everything that God administers in your life, providentially, supernaturally, and externally, and in your soul, are for your good, for your sake, and for His glory. And you need to know that. Because some of you will interpret the pages of your life today, last week, over the last two years, and you'll think, like, what does God have against me? Why does God not love me? And you will equate the love of God with prosperity and with comfort and with and with, and with presence and with gifts, not realizing that one of the greatest gifts that God gives you is in chastisement and affliction. Why? Because it is in our comfort and ease that, Christ, that, 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 that false believers are born. And that's a reality. 
You know, true Christians are forged and they are, di- they, 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 are, they are made known in the fires. You want to know why American Christianity is so um, floppy and, and so um, wimpy and so, and so unrealistic and just so, so superficial? It is because American comfort um, has bred a superficial Christianity. And that is being utilized today as tools for man's own gain. Strip that away in the advantages of Christianity. And what you'll see are those who are real. You know, if you want a revival in America, God will no doubt have to strip our comforts away. Remove our privileges. Discern between the wheat and the tares. So that men will finally once again have to depend upon God. Call out to Him in prayer. Instead of depending upon all the idols that they have. Um, In the meantime. We see that affliction is the reason, the means by which God brings Jonah to the end of himself and back into fellowship with God. Uh, Number two, I want you to see the elements of Jonah's prayer. Number one, Jonah's concern. Jonah's concern. It's interesting to note in, in, in the prayer as a whole that Jonah's concern is not what our concern would probably be. I mean, imagine you this week in a certain scenario, right? It's pressing in upon you. This issue at work, this issue at home, and no doubt our initial reaction is often, Lord, remove this thorn in my side. Even Paul was privy to that, right? I prayed three times. Yet he would not remove it. But nowhere in here, again, he's praying out of the fish's belly, but nowhere in this prayer do you actually see a prayer of petition in the sense of asking for anything. Jonah doesn't begin like we would, Father, I just need out of this belly. (laughs) I mean, this is horrible. This is ridiculous. How can I serve you here? What can I do from this locale? These circumstances bind me. And you know that's true because that's our prayer. Father, if only you would alleviate this burden. Lord, if only you would give me this job. Um, Father, if you'd only take out this thorn in my side for just a few moments at work. Father, if you'd only organize the things at home. But this is not what he asks. His concern is not to be removed from the the, the belly of the fish. Um, His great concern now is communion with God. And that concern... Or that complaint that he had previous um, now becomes his great desire. Again, chapter number one, you'll remember what is the desire of Jonah's heart in his rebellion. Three times it says that he wanted to be removed from the presence of the Lord. Uh, Verse number three, I think it's uh, twice. Uh, Verse number 10, he explains to the mariners um, that he has fled from the very presence of the Lord. So what does God give him? How does God deal with this? Well, in verse number 3 of chapter number 2, He says, You cast me into the deep. In verse number 4, He says, Then I have been cast out of your sight. You know what God does with Jonah? God gives Jonah the desires of his heart. I mean, Jonah recognizes that I was fleeing, yet at the same time, God was the one who was casting me out. Because of my rebellion, because of my disobedience, um, that it is Jonah who is being removed from the presence of the Lord. 
Be careful what you pray. Be careful what you desire. Um, God just may give it to you. And that's exactly what you see. God gives him the desires of his heart. And it is in that moment as he's cast out in the belly of the fish. And without the presence of God there to comfort him. Without an ear for him to hear. Um, that his desires change. Verse number four. Yet I will look again towards your holy temple. And he's not speaking there about his physical eyes. He's not saying that I want to go back to the temple. Um, clearly, um, he, he can see nothing. He's in the belly of a fish. Um, he's not like um, in Pinocchio where the guy's sitting in there with a fire. You know, I'm just roasting some fish that the whale just ate. No, he is in the belly of a great fish. His eyes, no doubt, are in total darkness. Um, he is... He is he is in a place of peril. And it is there that he realizes that God gave him the desires of his heart. He has been cast from the Lord and how much of a dark place that that is. Therefore, God uses the afflictions to change the desires of his heart. And the very activity that he despised, he now longs for. He desires to be in the presence of God. That's what it means. or That's the significance of your holy temple. I desire to be in that unique place of your presence. A desire for that fellowship, the, the presence of God, which is, let, which, is, which is followed by particular actions on his part. Verse number 7, he says, When my soul fainted within me, I remembered the Lord. And my prayer went up to you into your holy temple. That this was restored eventually. He goes on to say, I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. I will pay what I have vowed. Salvation is of the Lord. That in that moment, in that moment of restoration, um, Jonah commits himself once again to the Lord um, with sacrifice and the paying of vows. Jonah's great concern in the belly of the fish was not removal of his physical circumstances. It was fellowship with God. It was his ability to come once again into his presence. It was the opportunity to worship the triune God. As his voice is taken, no doubt, in a watery grave. It was to give him thanks that he deserves. It was to maintain a life of devotion and integrity. To pay to God what he owed and vowed to God. His desire was to be restored to active communion with God. Maybe just a little bit of application here very quickly. Um... Because maybe you're in a position of Jonah. And if not, you will be. And if not, you'll know a guy who is. But if you've never been, what you should know is that in that moment of utter rebellion, the great sin against God, again, is not just in the no, but what the no represents. And that if you will ever be restored back into fellowship with God, um, then that too must be the great desire of your heart. That you have to stop wishing your circumstances were different. You have to stop believing that hey, the grass is greener on the, ever, uh, on the other side. I mean, I've tried 17 different yards. Like, and all of them are the same. You know why? Because you live in every one. You're the problem. I'm the problem. And that God in that unique fellowship cultivates a life by the power of the Spirit of God that enables us to live out the call and equips us to live out the commission that He has given us in every scenario where fruit will abound abundantly as the Spirit lives in and through you as you're abiding in Christ and His Word. 
You know, the prodigal, what I'm saying is, is that restoration comes. Fellowship is restored when we come to the realization that our greatest need is communion with God. The prodigal son doesn't rush home um, to the father's house and say, man, the thing that really brought me back was your cooking, dad. I could just miss the way. That you would wake me up in the morning, you know. I just, I, I, I just, I, all the elements and the trappings of being in the father's home. No, no, no. He doesn't say the husks were horrible and I, and, and I, I long for the taste of home. No, he says, I will arise and go to my father. What he desired more than anything was that relationship to be restored such that he was willing to live in any condition if only the father was there. And that you and I in this life will only find a lively Christian life full of joy, peace, utter blessing internally in the soul. If we learn to live in communion with God, fellowship with him, hearing from his word, recognizing that all of the idolatry of the world has not only um, encompassed and taken the hearts of the pagans, but I too am an idolater at heart and I've carried it into my Christianity. And that it's all worthless. Verse number 8, those who regard worthless idols forsake their own mercy. This is a hard um, verse to translate. There's only five words in Hebrew. There's many different translations for it. But the best seems to translate the verse as follows. Those who cling to worthless idols will abandon their loyalty to them. Those who cling to worthless idols will abandon their loyalty to them. That Jonah seems in the belly of the fish. He's being afflicted by God. Providence is pouring out upon him. He sees the love of God and the hand of God in the belly of the fish in the greatness of the storm drawing him back. Jonah realizes the impotency of his idols. Those things which he worshipped, you say, I thought he worshipped the one true God, Yahweh. In some sense, he did at one point. But I can tell you, what he's not doing now is worshipping God, so he's worshipping something else. That his sacrifice, his life was moving in another direction and that God was not his God. Therefore, something had captured his heart and it was something other than Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God. And that God accomplishes what the affliction was sent forth in Jonah's heart as he realizes and recognizes the great loss in his rebellion has not been the privileges of knowing God. It has been the loss of his relationship with the Father. I see so many men and I see so many women enter into engagements in marriage, not because they love that person, but because they love what that person gives them. Um, they love how much they love them. <laughs> I wake up in the morning, man, and I just love the way you take care of me. I just love the way that you love me. I mean, you think great things about me, and I, I love that about you. I mean, in all reality, that's the truth. In some sense, you can love the benefits of a person without actually loving that person. That's when the benefits leave. What happens? Those marriages end up in conflict and ultimately divorce. Why? Because they want to be worshipped. And this person won't bow down to me, so I'll try to find someone that will. And, and ultimately, they, they won't because they find somebody who worships themselves. That true love is the sacrifice of self. True love is loving that individual, that person more than even self. It's, 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 it's a life devoted and committed service and the sacrifice of self for that person as Christ has, has loved us. 
That we are not to love God. We are to revel, yes, in His privileges. We are to revel in the blessings that He gives. And we are to enjoy those things. But those things are just instruments, tools, and pictures to draw us to the one true God. We are to love God for Himself, not for what He gives. Thus, when we are in the belly of the fish, or we are in, 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 in circumstances, when, when, when affliction comes, and, 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 and even Satan himself, and all the world has to give, is, is drawing upon you the fantasy, that they have and the privileges and blessings that they have are not greater than, than God Himself. Don't be, this is why so many Christians are drawn away by flashy things from other religions and from the secular nature of the world. Why? Because they have flashier gifts than God does. Love God. Fellowship with Him and you'll recognize the true nature of communion and power from God such that you'll never leave. Why? Because those things are born in the soul of a man, not put in his hands necessarily. That God shows Jonah that his greatest need um, is communion with himself. Just like the prodigal son recognizes. Father, it wasn't the gifts that I longed for. It was you. And Jonah comes to that reality. You see it in Jonah's faith. Jonah's faith. That's an element of Jonah's prayer. And we've already talked about this, but he recognizes God as the source of his affliction. Um, Jonah's prayer was a prayer of faith. And Jonah prays to that end. Don't have time, but I want to go on and give you these just rapid fire. Um, An element of Jonah's prayer was humility in his prayer. I mean, that is a... A proof of faith, right? Um, in line with Psalm chapter 51, verse number 16. For you, you, you do no desire, you, you don't desire sacrifice or else I'd give it. You don't delight in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. That Jonah's restoration is facilitated because of a humble prayer. Um, he realizes that in the belly of the fish he has nothing to offer God. What are you going to sacrifice? The sacrifice of my thanksgiving, he says in verse number 9. I'll keep my vows. He recognizes that salvation is of the Lord already, even though he's not yet been delivered from the belly of the fish. The fish may be seen as his deliverance here from the billows and the waves, but I think that there's something more. Um, Jonah is drawn in a humble posture to recognize that he has nothing else to give God but himself. And that really that's all that God desires. Pastor Robert said it this morning, the preface even to the, 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 the opening scripture reading, right? God desires you. Not all of your fanciful um, interpretations, your creative abilities, your, 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 your intelligence, all of these things. No. no, Jonah is stripped to a humility in prayer and he has nothing to give other than to give himself and that's exactly what God desires. God desiring Jonah and Jonah desiring God. Number three, the word of God is the substance of his prayer. I want to give you this quickly. And we know that this is a prayer of faith because this is a prayer um, where the substance of the prayer is the word of God. And I don't have time to talk to you about all this, but I would encourage you to go home and to study this prayer. This prayer is a psalm of psalms. That there is no less than seven different pieces that are directly referenced, six of which are, 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 are one or two of which are actually almost verbatim quotes out of the psalms. That what you find here is Jonah at the end of his rope without any material, no means. Um, and what is it that draws him to God but the recollection and the remembrance of the word of God of previous ages? 
You have a true prophet of God here who could call out and say, you know, give me a word from the Lord. Yet he knows that he cannot run to God in his soul. He cannot fellowship. God will not give him his ear. So what does he do? He leans upon treasures of the word of God that no doubt he was taught as a child. No doubt he's saying as he as 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 a congregation that ascended to 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 the the, the day of atonement. No doubt um, God utilized the means of the word of God um, to draw him back to himself. You say, what's the application there? I think it's clear. The Word of God is generally the primary means that the Spirit utilizes to draw men and women who are out of fellowship back to God. That it is the Word of God treasured up in a time where there is affliction and you cannot run to Him that God uses to bring alive the soul of a man as it preaches to him and proclaims the glorious truths as he is in a far country. That it is those remembrances of the prodigal son of the father's words that no doubt the relationship, the fellowship that he had with him that drew him back. And in this moment, Jonah is reminded of the faithfulness of God. For example, in Psalm chapter 31 and verse 32, um, you, you, you read um, those words that, that you find in verse number four. Then I said, I have been cast out of your sight, yet I will look again toward your holy temple. Jonah is drawn back to a psalmist who at one point understood that he too had been cast out of God's sight, out of his presence. Yet he looked to that promise where the psalmist says that he looked again toward his holy temple and found the Lord. Thus he drew strength from that to cry out to God. And God heard his prayer. And that's the reality of the text. That over and over again, what you find is that Jonah is utilizing the word of God by faith to draw him back into fellowship with God. What's the application again? Treasure up the word of God now. Teach your children. Put as much of the word in their hearts and souls that you can find. You know, they are sponges. You say, they don't understand a bit of it. I don't care. This is not something, a fun activity that you're trying to get them to do. You're not, you're, you're not entertaining them and thinking, man, they don't enjoy that. I'm not going to do it. No, this is, this, is a, this is a strategy of spiritual warfare. If they abandon the family, if they run from God, then you want them never to be able to run completely. That when they're out there in the far country, you want the God to, to have and to raise to life that word upon a dead conscience that may bring them back to Himself and reconcile and restore them to God. God has done that many days in my own life. Struggling through this or running through that, wondering where God is in that. And he'll bring Psalm chapter 34. He'll bring Psalm chapter number 37. He'll bring Psalm chapter number 110 in my mind. He'll bring Paul's words. There is no temptation that has overtaken you such as is common to man. But God is faithful. How many times have you found encouragement? You know, you need that reality. Jonah is the product of the faithfulness of a son of truth being instilled in him that truth of God's word, not only in, 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 his, in, in his life as a child, but, but all throughout his life. And when he's farthest from God, he realizes, I cannot run from him at all. If you want to run from God efficiently, you'll have to run from God and you'll have to remove every remembrance of him in your mind. And may you never be able to do that. Finally, and we'll finish soon. 
I know that this was a, a prayer of faith. Uh, number four, maybe even ultimately. Because God hears his prayer. Proverbs fifteen twenty nine: the Lord is far from the wicked, but he hears the prayer of the righteous. Psalm 34, 15, the eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous and his ears are open to their cry. The righteous cry. And the Lord heareth and delivereth them out of all their troubles. That the silence of God, the silence of God finished that day for Jonah. Jonah was restored through prayer. When he cried out to the Lord and God answered him, when he humbled himself out of the belly of Sheol, he cried, not with eloquence of speech, with a plainness. He said, I mean, who says my, I mean, the word of God of all things going to be recorded. The weeds were wrapped around my head. This is what you remember, Jonah. He's just being himself. Not eloquent, just a plainness of speech, stripped of everything and coming to God. Desiring communion with him. And what happens? He's restored. He's reconciled. Fellowship. He's gotten now the desire of his heart. And he's not out of the weeds yet. He's still in the belly of the fish. Yet he rejoices. He offers God what he can from the watery grave. Not knowing if he's ever going to be delivered or vomited out um, to serve another day. Um, he's in the deepest, darkest, most isolated place of all of his life. The place of what everyone may think. Like if you look from the external and you just read this point of the story, there's no return. Jonah's not a believer. Um, he's gone too far. The place where my, surely God is done with this man is the place of restoration for Jonah it is not only that but it's the place of sweet communion it is the place of worship once again he's entered in the great fish becomes the sanctuary of God that day for Jonah in a place where you think no man could ever bring him praise Jonah is brought to the end of himself and worships God in the belly of the fish he bows the, the, his knee in his soul to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And God hears his plea for mercy and he is satisfied. And this is the God of the Bible. And many of you are coming out or going into what you might think is the most difficult things that you've ever faced up to this point. And I would assure you if you're one of his is, it is not. The things in your life are not because He hates you, but because He loves you. And I would pray this morning and all throughout the week, and you never forget this in all of your life, that anything, if you are in Christ, any and everything that you experience is the love of God. It is His hand reaching towards you. It is Him chasing after you. It is the pursuit of God for you. And if you are wayward today, I want you to know more than anything, if you will cry out, He will hear your voice. If you, you can commune with Him. Maybe so many of you have been like me in former days and gotten used to the silence. I think that's one of the great dangers of Christianity. We have gotten so used to the silence. That's one reason we get offended when people said, the Lord's doing things in my life. Or what, look at the, what the Lord's doing over there. We become like Jonah. He wouldn't do that among those people. I think that it pricks our conscience because we've not heard from God for so long. I can't remember the last time we picked up the word of God and it was like a double-edged sword. 
When was the last time you read through the Old Testament or read of the New Covenant, the grace of God, and God just just overwhelmed your heart? It was like a hammer that crushed. It was like the most magnificent piece of equipment to till up the hardest or to, to till up the hardest of grounds. And seed went forth, and fruit sprang up, and the joy of Christ overwhelmed your soul. When was the last time the Word of God, by the power of the Spirit, came forth, and you thought that's sweeter? than any honey that I've ever tasted that is more precious to me than silver or gold. Give me that. May all the world fail, but you give me that. When was the last time you heard from God? The silence is deafening. And you've gotten, we've gotten all too used to it. I'm not arguing for some charismania. I'm not arguing for some supernatural work of, of the Spirit. I'm not arguing for fire for clothes of tongue coming down like fire. I'm arguing for the Word of God going forth with power, accomplishing what God desires in His people. And as that Spirit and as that branch is engrafted into the vine through union and lively communion with Him, the Spirit of God operates in such a way that we know that we are His because of the joy that we have, because of the resistance that we have because of the love of the Father. When was the last time you heard from God? Or are you there upon the boat of the, of, of, on your way to Tarshish, there upon the boat interpreting the pages of the storm as just coincidence? Or do you see it as the hand of the Lord saying, wake up, talk to me. Come unto me, all you that labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And I can't quit until I give you just one more, and I think one of the great points of this book being made. That if you look at chapter 1 and read chapter number 2, what you'll notice is a great parallel. That in contents of chapter number 2 correspond to the contents of chapter number 1 in phenomenal ways. Just as in chapter number 1, the sailors have a crisis on the sea. They pray to covenant-keeping God, Yahweh. They're delivered from the storm. And then they sacrifice and make vows to Yahweh. So in chapter 2, Jonah, the prophet of God, is in a crisis in the sea. He prays to Yahweh. He's delivered from his drowning. And then he promises to sacrifice and make vows to the Lord. So what does all that mean? I think what he's saying... Because at the heart of Jonah, he doesn't believe that those people should be saved. With a superiority complex, he knows that God, in his mercy, will extend it to them. And therefore, he abandons ship, as it were, and runs in a different direction. um, Because he doesn't believe that they should be saved. I think at some point... Some reality here in chapter 1 and chapter number 2. God is saying to Jonah, to the nation of Israel, as it's being taken back, I'll save whom I want to save. And I'll save them the same way. Um, That God brings the Jew the same way as He brings the Gentile. And if God wants to bring the Gentile the same way that He does the Jew, then who are you, Jonah? And today, I would commend that to you. You may feel like you are out. You may feel like you are undeserving. You may feel like you are unsavable. But God brings all men the same way. As they come to the end of themselves, they realize the futility and impotence of their idols. They recognize that that all the circumstances are warring around them. But really, at the end of the day, the story is about me and God and my relationship to Him. 
And that if you'll cry out to Him in faith, believing, He will hear. I'm not commending this to something uh, to you today as a, as a tool in your toolbox to try out. I'm saying that true faith believes that when you cry out, God will hear you. So come, come to him humbly, come to him quickly, run to him now and believe the psalmist, believe Jonah, believe blind Bartimaeus, believe the account of the woman given over to 12 years of, of sickness, believe all of God's word throughout Old Testament and the New that those who come to him in faith in Christ alone will receive the grace that he extends to them. So I, I commend to you today, come, cry out to him. In all of your difficulty and circumstances, in all of the silence, cry out to God. You say, I don't know what to say. He doesn't require eloquence. He just requires you. So run to Him. Run to Him in Christ. The sacrifice that He has purchased on your behalf. And live and live forevermore. Not only in the life to come, but even now. Even now. So come. Let us pray. Father, we love and thank you and praise you for the blessing it is to gather around your word. Father, if it were not for men like Jonah, I would think that I was all alone. If it were not for men like Paul, Father, to remind me often, I would think that I was all alone. If it were not for the angel of the Lord, to Elijah, encouraged him with 7,000 more have not bowed the knee to Baal. Father, I would think that I was all alone. Father, we thank and praise you that we are not alone. That not only do we have a spirit who comes alongside, Father, a Savior in Christ who can sympathize with our infirmities, but we too have that same spirit working in the children of God throughout the ages. What a comfort it is, Father, to see your activity in the lives of those who have gone before us and also, Father, in the lives of those that are here now. And may that be an encouragement to us, Lord, as we go forth. May we remember that we are not alone, that we have Christ. May we call upon him often, Father. May we recognize the great sin of our disobedience. Father, is not in just transgression of the law, but it is in, um, Father, the pursuit of a world in light, in, instead of our Savior. But that our great sin is in a, the breaking of fellowship with God. Maybe not in word, Father, but in deed. So, Father, let us pursue Him. Let us pursue Him for all that we are. Let us see the great value of our Savior. May we see the price and the value of His precious blood. May we see the great value of the power of the Spirit, Father, operating in and through us. And Father, may we hunger and thirst for that more than all. Father, may we see our circumstances as the loving hand of God drawing us to Him. And Father, may we thank Him often for it. May we be like the Apostle Paul, who, yes praise for the alleviation of the burden even when Satan is buffeting him yet at the same time may we praise him that in that weakness we find strength because it's in that environment that we pursue the Lord we know that in all of our comforts Father 
Um, we rarely need you. So, Father, if that's the case, remove all of our comforts, all of our earthly privileges, all of our great pleasures, that our pleasure may be in you. Father, for this we pray, because we know that we cannot accomplish this ourselves. And, Father, we need you. So do with this word what you desire. Send it forth, Father, like a net to bring home your wayward sons and daughters. And may it be received, Father, is that the very love of God in Christ. Amen. If you will, we'll stand and sing.